0: Please turn with me once again to the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, this morning, Leviticus chapter 18. We will be reading through the chapter as we go, section by section. This is another one of those difficult passages. Uh, One of the reasons that I chose to preach through Leviticus is because now and then, I feel the obligation to preach a portion of the scripture that you don't normally hear preached. Paul speaks of preaching the whole counsel of God, and I want to be faithful to that. So every now and then, as I'm looking down the road, I'll ask myself which biblical books I've never heard preached, or at least have heard preached preached very little, and then I'll commit to preaching that. That's how I ended up preaching through Song of Solomon years ago. But as we approach the end of such books, another thought pops into my mind, and that has certainly been true as I've been planning out the remainder of Leviticus, and that is, what's the easiest book I could possibly preach? I don't know what that will be yet, but if you think about it, you can pray for me in that respect. Where might God lead us after Leviticus? I actually Googled that question. Which book of the Bible is easiest to preach? Number of responses, zero. There were a couple of responses which were similar, however, such as, which book of the Bible is easiest to read? And so, I looked at one of those, and this guy actually listed all 66 books in order, from easiest to most difficult. Guess which book was most difficult? Leviticus. So, just so you know what will be happening in the future, unless the Lord has other plans, we're going to finish up Leviticus sometime around the end of November. And then, of course, we're into the Christmas season, so I'll probably take those weeks leading up to Christmas for some uh, a mini-series revolving around the Incarnation, and then as we move into the new year, we will once again begin the systematic study of another book in this collection of God-breathed books, but as of yet, I have no idea what that will be. This morning, however, we have the blessing of delving into another portion of God's inspired word, which we call Leviticus. It's often the case that things that we find most difficult turn out to be the things that are most rewarding. That has certainly been true in my life in regard to the preaching of this book, and I hope you can say the same when you commit yourself to reading through the Bible in a year and then get bogged down in Leviticus, the problem is with you, not with the book. The glory of God is on these pages. And if you've been with us throughout our study thus far and you have not seen the glory of God in Leviticus, then there are, I would suggest, two possible explanations. First, it is entirely possible that I have failed to show the glory of God in Leviticus. That is certainly possible. There is always that possibility, whether I'm preaching through Leviticus or Romans. And if that's the case, then I would beg your forgiveness. However, if you have not seen the glory of God on the pages of Leviticus, there is a second explanation. Your heart is hard. You are indifferent to the things of God. You don't care to see the glory of God. And so you have not seen the glory of God here because you wouldn't recognize the glory of God if it slapped you in the face. That's another explanation. You haven't seen the glory of God because you don't care to see the glory of God. If that's the case, then I would plead with you this morning, one sinner to another, seek and you will find. Stop being a passive listener and be an active seeker of glory. Engage your ears and your minds and your heart. The Lord says to you this morning through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Every time I step into this pulpit, I know those to whom I speak. There are many of you whose hearts have been made new by the grace of God. And though you find life filled with a mixture of trouble and trial goodness and joy and tears you are pursuing God you want more of him and you know that you will find him in the pages of his word that describes some of you there are others of you who have been made new by the grace of God but you've lost your first love Your heart has grown cold. You are here because you know that this is where you should be on the Lord's day, but the preaching of God's Word has become little more to you than a lecture. You've given your heart to other things. And when the Word of God is proclaimed, it is those other things that your mind turns to. Others, I know, are here because someone else wants you to be here. From the moment you walk into this room, you're counting the moments until you can walk out again. You spend most of the time here staring at the floor. And if you do raise your head, your gaze never gets beyond the rail of the pew in front of you. Your heart is dead Your heart is hard, and you are in grave spiritual danger. You need to see the glory of God, and you need to see the glory of God in contrast with your own sin. You need to see the glory of God on the pages of Leviticus, and you need to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately for you, the one God has appointed to show you the face of Christ in Leviticus is me. But here's the good news. I and others like me are all the Spirit needs. There's only one sense in which I would compare myself to the Apostle Paul, and it's found in the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. May the Spirit use His power to open our eyes this morning wherever we may be in relation to him that we may see the glory of God that our faith might be shown to be the result of the power of God working through his spirit and his word father make it so lead those seeking your glory into a deeper revelation of that glory Take those hearts which have turned cold and fill them with a red-hot desire to see Your glory here in Your Word. Open closed ears. Make hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Open blind eyes that those who have been staring down at the floor might look up and see the glory of Christ. And if you will, or whatever unfathomable reason you might have for doing so, use me. In the name of Christ, I plead. Amen. Now, let's turn to God's Word. There are four parts, at least, as we look at chapter 18 of Leviticus. The first part comes in the very first two verses. It's very much like a prologue to a covenant statement in which God announces who he is. And the announcement of who he is supplies the motive, the rationale for everything else that follows. And so the first two verses give us that prologue to the whole chapter, which in fact supply the whole most important reason for following the way of life which God has set down before us. And then in verses 3 through 5, we have an explicit declaration on God's part that His people are not to live like the people of the world around them with regard to immorality. In other words, Israel is not to copy the immorality of the surrounding cultures, but is to be deliberately loyal to the moral standards of the God who has announced Himself in the first two verses of the chapter. And so we see in verses 3 through 5 that statement by God, which prevents Israel from saying, like the little boy, but everybody else is doing it. God says, I know everybody else is doing it. You are not to live that way. And then you have this long section From verse 6 all the way to verse 23 in which we see a catalog of sexual sins which are prohibited to the people of God even though they are commonly practiced in the cultures around them. And then finally you look at verses 24 down through verse 30 and you see a declaration on God's part of the certainty of his judgment against those who participate in this kind of immorality. This is, yet again, another chapter that contains subject matter, which is somewhat difficult to speak of in public, in mixed company, in an intergenerational setting. And yet it is God's Word. And so it is meant for our profit and for our instruction, for our growth in grace, for our living in righteousness. Righteousness. The relevance of such a passage for our own day, for our own cultural experience, can be missed only by those who are intent on missing it. It is that obvious. Of course, that's a characteristic of those who are still dead in their sin. They can and will take the most clear statements of Scripture and deny them or qualify them or in some way write them off so that the judgment of God in their own minds and hearts no longer applies to them, they think. And as we're seeing all around us, this response to God's Word is perhaps most clear in the area of sexual sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, we read, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as on the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, let's look at these four aspects of this chapter this morning. We begin in verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am you, the Lord your God. This is the motivation for Christian ethics that God, our God, is alone God. One cannot read through the Scripture without understanding God's concern for the ethical life of His people. But God does not simply provide us with raw commands. He often tells us why we should obey His commands. And we find an instance of that gracious explanatory work here in our text this morning. In verses 1 and 2, God gives an absolute motivation for the ethical behavior of His people. Both His ancient people Israel and His new covenant people. The people of the church. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Whether they be Jew or Gentile. Slave or free. Male or female. From whatever tongue or tribe or nation. He argues in verses 1 and 2 that God's people are to live this way because he is the Lord our God. The scripture gives us a number of motivations for why we are to do what God says we are to do. There are good and legitimate motivations in addition to this one. Gratitude, for instance, is one such motivation. But the older I get, the more I think about why I do what I do, the more clearly I see those illegitimate motivations. I think that's because the longer one walks with Christ, the more clearly one sees the glory and holiness of God, the more clearly one sees their true selves as well. We get to know each other better as we get to know God better. I look back on the things that I do, and I see that I may have done the right thing for the wrong reasons. I may have been selfish, self interested. No one else knows it, because we hide those things pretty well after a while. But we know our own hearts. One very obvious motivation for what we do, why we obey, why we love the Word of God, why we obey the directives of the Word of God, one good motivation for that, is gratitude, as I mentioned. We're grateful to God because of his mercy toward us. We may be motivated by a realization of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. In fact, Jesus makes it clear, doesn't he, that those who have received mercy will be merciful because of the mercy they've received. And so the grace of God motivates our graciousness. But one of the greatest motivations for doing what we're supposed to do is that which we learn as small children when we question the command of our parents and they provide us with an explanation and a motivation because I said so you know in regard to our human interactions for those who understand what scripture teaches about the dynamics of human authority that's all we should need If one possesses legitimate authority and is exercising that legitimate authority legitimately, whether parents or teachers or elders within the church or employers or the governing authorities, then we are called to submit to those authorities. And because I said so should be the only explanation we require all the motivation we need how much more when we consider the authority of God you know what God is saying here fundamentally to the children of Israel the reason that you are to live this way is because I am the Lord your God that's as far as it goes in this context as I mentioned in discipleship next week we're going to gather for going deeper, and we're going to talk about what has been called the problem of evil. And as traditionally formulated, the problem is set forth this way. If God is all-powerful, all-beneficent, that is entirely good, how can evil exist in the world? If God is all-good, then he doesn't want evil to exist. If he's all-powerful, he can do something about it. So how do we explain the existence of evil Since evil exists, the argument goes, God must either not be all good, or he must not be all powerful, or perhaps there's no God at all. Now that's the question we're going to examine next Lord's Day afternoon, and one of the things we'll be talking about in regard to that answer is closely related to what we're seeing here in verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 18. If you interact with unbelievers and these questions come up, one of the things you will inevitably hear is I don't want to do what is right because some God told me to do it. I want to do what's right because I've decided that for myself. Which is, of course, a question of authority. Is there a basis for ethics and morality outside of God? And I hope the problem there is self-evident to you. What do you do when you decide what is right, but that differs from what someone else thinks is right? Where's the court of appeals? There needs to be a more substantial motivation for doing what you ought to do than your own feelings or subjective reasoning. And that's exactly what God is giving His people here. He says, let me tell you at the outset, here's what you're going to do and here's why you're going to do it. Because I am God. I am the authority. Because I said so. And you notice that at the end of this argument, and that's what it really is, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. And where does it go from there? Nowhere. There is no response. There is no counter. There is no reply. That ends the discussion. You're going to live the way I tell you because I am the Lord your God. This is a lesson that we need to learn. The God motivation for Christian living. For pursuing holiness. We live this way because the Lord is our Second thing I want you to see is this. It is our life that shows our heart. That is, it is how we live that demonstrates the reality or the falsehood of our profession. Look at this in verses 3 through 5. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord, in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgment, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Our life. Rather than merely our words, our claims, our professions, it is our life that demonstrates where our allegiance truly lies. God's saying here in verses 3 through 5, keeping my commands even when it means being out of step with the culture in which you live is what demonstrates who it is who truly trusts in me. That's what shows who truly loves me. This is what shows who is loyal to me. Professing me with your lips is not demonstrating the reality of the heart. Your life demonstrates the reality of the heart. And so God's saying to us that we manifest our love for him as we live the way he teaches us to live, In His Word, that is how we trust Him. That is how we worship Him with our very lives. This is what the Lord was saying when He spoke to His disciples in John 14 and said, if you love Me, what are you going to do? You're going to keep My commandments. By the way, we should make it very clear that this is not the way by which anyone is saved. If it were, we'd all be doomed. It is, however, the way we manifest in our actions that we have indeed been saved by the grace of God. This, in fact, is the way that you understand James chapter 2. As many have said, well, James chapter 2 contradicts what Paul says because James is talking about being saved by works whereas Paul says we're saved by faith well no James is saying if you read that passage properly and carefully James is saying it is your works which show forth the reality of the fact that you have indeed been saved by grace in the first place now why is all this important it's important because it has been, become commonplace that many professing Christians are freely and openly living at odds with the sexual morality which is defined here in Leviticus 18 and throughout the Word of God. We have come to the place at which it is assumed by many that one can be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet live a life of sexual immorality and even redefine what is meant by the phrase sexual immorality. But as we see here in Leviticus chapter 18, God does not allow that option. The point is not that a person has to be perfect in order to be a Christian. The point is not that there is no forgiveness of sin. It is simply that the Bible, from Old Testament to New, from Moses to Paul, won't let you create this third category of Christian. The Christian who lives in blatant, unrepentant defiance of God's will. There are not three categories of people. There are not unbelievers, disciples, and then this third category of Christian who lives in blatant defiance of God's Word. You won't find those categories in Scripture. Scripture knows of only two categories, unbelievers and disciples. And disciples obey their teacher. Disciples obey their Lord. And that means that as a body, as a gathered body of Christ, we need to exhort one another to stand with God, to stand with Christ, to stand with the Scripture in regard to the way we live. And we need to press home the urgency of sexual purity as the Scripture defines it for our own lives and the lives of our children. This is what we find in the third section of our chapter. This is all laid out for us in verses 6 through 23. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness, you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her daughter's, her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. Nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. The scripture speaks brutally and honestly. Notice how God makes it clear that sexual purity is part of living for God. It is part of living with God. It's part of being a believer in the one true God. In this catalog of prohibitions, you will notice that every manner of fornication and adultery is prohibited. Every manner of incest is prohibited. Every manner of homosexuality and bestiality is prohibited. Child sacrifice for the sake of fertility rites, which was so common in Canaanite culture, is prohibited. All these various sexual immoralities, all these immoral sexual behaviors Are condemned we have lived for quite some time in a world that says your private world and your public world do not need to match up that you can be a perfectly productive citizen in the public world and live however you want in private but God says no My people will not live that way. My people will be the same on the inside as they are on the outside. And notice as well to whom these prohibitions are addressed. You know, we've been studying Proverbs in our adult discipleship class on Sunday mornings prior to worship. Yes, that's a commercial. If you haven't been joining us, please do. We've seen that Proverbs has a lot of very strong things to say about women and immorality. But take notice of the exhortations you find here in Leviticus 18. They are consistently directed to men. You shall not do this, you shall not do that against women. the Me Too movement could have adopted Leviticus 18 as their handbook. Now you also have a prohibition against bestiality and homosexuality, but the bulk of the crimes that are forbidden here are crimes of men against women in circumstances where men can wrongfully use their power. And God said, long before Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein came along. These things will not take place among my people. So often we work with Christians who have been crippled in their own ability to appreciate the glory of the goodness of the Father because of their experience of an earthly father who did not manifest the glory and goodness of the Heavenly Father. That's a real issue. And as our culture moves ever increasingly into being a culture in which fathers rarely exist, it's going to become more and more of an issue. But God tells us, This is not what men are going to look like in my culture. In my culture, men are going to act towards women with care. They are going to treat them with dignity as those who have been made in the image of God. They are not going to use them as objects of their own selfish gratification. They are going to manifest in their relationships, even in their sexual relationships, they are going to manifest, they are going to image... The reflection of the glory that is me. One might be made a bit uncomfortable as we read these things this morning. Sitting here in our pews, inside a building set apart for the worship of God. But don't think for one moment That these things in the text, as shocking as they may be to hear read aloud in this place, don't think that they are not taking place around us. They are. It's happening in Mayapak. It's happening in your community. It's happening in New York State. It's happening in America. The question is, are these things happening among us? We would like to think they're not. But to whom is Moses speaking? Moses is speaking to the covenant people of God. He's speaking to those who heard His voice speak to them. He's speaking to those who had received the Ten Commandments directly from the mountain. Are These things happening among us. I hope not, but I can't assume not. Not everyone among us is a disciple. Not everyone among us loves Christ. Just as not everyone among God's old covenant people loved Yahweh. Which is why Leviticus 18 concludes the way it does in the final section of this chapter. Verse 24 Says, "Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled; therefore, I have brought its in, its punishment upon it, so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations." neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among the people. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any kind, any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. God makes it clear that participation in these sexual abominations, these immoralities, will bring his judgment. At one level, Moses is explaining the work of Israel in cleansing the land of Canaan. Most of us, at one time or another, have struggled with that question. How in the world can God send his people in to commit what is essentially genocide? against whole populations of people who have occupied the land of Canaan long before the people of God came along. How can God do that? How is that right? And Moses is explaining that here. The sin of the people of the land, the Canaanites, had become so odious in God's sight that he, as it were, had appointed another purge like he did in the days of Noah. It's a horrific thought. But that's what Moses is saying. That God's judgment will justly fall upon those who practice such abominations. It's not surprising, is it, that if you chart the history of civilizations, when civilizations degenerate into these kinds of abominations, it is not long before those civilizations disappear. I believe that's what we're seeing in our own culture today. God is bringing judgment. Romans chapter 1 is being played out before our eyes. The Lord will not suffer to be mocked in regard to His universal standards of right and wrong. Here's what you need to understand as we close today. This is not only true on a cultural level, but also on a personal level. God will not be mocked by cultures, and He will not be mocked by individuals. If you live your life in disregard of the moral standards of God, and if you fail to repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness, judgment is coming. It may come in various forms, in this life, and it will certainly come in the next. That is the promise of God. He will not be mocked. But there is grace. There is grace. And God extends that grace to anyone who will receive it. If you have lived your life contradicting the Word of God, disregarding the Word of God, not caring about what God has said in regard to these things, and you realize that judgment is coming, there is an escape. There is a way out. God has provided that way. Because really, what we're talking about here this morning, when we talk about obedience, or disobedience rather, we're not just speaking about one area of life. We're not just speaking about disobedience in the area of sexuality. We're speaking about disobedience in every area of life. And every one of us who is sitting in this room this morning live our lives in disobedience. We are fallen people. Each one of us needs the grace of God. Some of us have found that grace. Some of us have come to Christ and we have cried out to Him for forgiveness We have repented of our sin and we have found that grace in Jesus and He has made us new creatures and He has promised to change us and He's in that process. So we're not just picking on certain kinds of people this morning. We're saying that whatever your issue is, it can be forgiven if you will agree with God you will come to Him and say, I know that I have broken Your law. I know that I have disregarded Your Word. I know that I deserve Your judgment, but I come to You in the name of Christ pleading for forgiveness. You do that. Turn from your sin and embrace Jesus, and God will embrace you. He will receive you. Because Christ came. The incarnate God. And He went to the cross and He suffered the wrath of God in your place if you would receive Him. God's not going to take your sin and sweep it under the rug. He Obviously, He takes sin much more seriously than that. But He has made a way that sin will be paid for. His wrath will be poured out. And it came out. It it was poured out and it was paid for on the cross by God's own Son, the sinless One, who became sin for us. This is the Gospel. Turn from sin and embrace Christ and God will embrace you. You will become one of His. And then as a child of God, what are we called to do? We are called to pursue holiness. To pursue righteousness. Why? Because He is the Lord our God. Father, make it so. Convict those who are far from You. Draw them, Father, to Your Son that they might know forgiveness, that they might escape the wrath which awaits. And Father, for those of us who are yours, give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we be aware of the influence of the world around us, and may we stand apart from it, because you are the Lord our God. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.